You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each week, we bring you talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. Uh, It's a book about humility, and uh, some people think humility is thinking lowly of yourself, but my favorite definition of humility is radical self-awareness from a distance. David Brooks refers to his latest book, The Road to Character. He discussed it at the Aspen Ideas Festival with journalist Katie Couric. Brooks is one of America's most prominent political commentators and writes op-ed columns for the New York Times. In writing The Road to Character, Brooks examined the personal journeys of ten people, including Dwight D. Eisenhower and George Eliot. He describes them all as starting out broken inside, but a series of life experiences gave them a moral education that led to a more developed internal character. Their transformations, he says, influenced the world around them. Here are David Brooks and Katie Couric. I'm thrilled to be here with David, somebody I admire so much, and, uh, and I loved his book, The Road to Character, and it's something that has been on my mind and probably the mind of many of you all as we kind of navigate the treacherous waters of modern society. So we're just going to start. And, and David, in your author's note about this book, you state, I wrote this book to save my own soul. And before we talk about that, I was going to ask you to read this one paragraph, because I think it's a good table setter for us. <laughs> this is a paragraph my friends think is the truest paragraph in the book. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I was born with a natural disposition toward shallowness. I now work as a pundit and a columnist. I'm paid to be a narcissistic blowhard, to volley my opinions, to appear more confident about them than I really am, to appear smarter than I really am, to appear better and more authoritative than I really am. I have to work harder than most people to avoid a life of smug superficiality. I've also become more aware, like many people these days, I've lived a life of vague moral aspiration, vaguely wanting to be good, vaguely wanting to serve some larger purpose, while lacking a concrete moral vocabulary, a clear understanding of how to live a rich inner life, or even a clear knowledge of how character is developed and depth is achieved. Was that a paragraph for you to write? Yes. (laughs) But uh, it's a book about... Humility, and, and humility is, uh, some people think humility is thinking lowly of yourself, but my favorite definition of humility is radical self-awareness from a distance. And so it's, humility is a quality of self-awareness. It's the ability to step outside yourself. You, if you ever see Chuck Close paintings or photographs, the face is the whole thing. Humility is the opposite of that. It's seeing yourself as part of a broader landscape. And so part of the thing about writing this book was I run, ran across people who were just way better and way deeper than I am. And, you know, some of them were famous. Uh, I happened to, at Washington, be seated next to the Dalai Lama at a luncheon, and he's just a deep, joyful soul. Uh, he actually, I, at the luncheon, he laughs at odd moments. He's the kind of guy who just laughs for no apparent reason. And, and you want to be polite, so you sort of laugh along with him. And then you want to insert jokes just to make sense of the laughter. Uh, and I was sitting with him, and he would laugh, and I would laugh, and I was trying to think of what to say. Uh, and he, I, he was carrying a, a canvas bag, a sort of a Dalai Lama bag. And, and I said, so you got any candy in the bag? And he, he starts emptying the bag, and it's everything. He pulling out stuff, and it's like everything you get in the first-class cabin of an international flight. So it's like the eye thing and the earplug, then a, a big Toblerone bar. But... When you're around a guy like that, there's just a depth of joy. And you don't get that from your career. Uh, and, and, you know, he's famous, but I don't think I put this in the book, but I, a couple, about a year ago, I went up to Frederick, Maryland, and I, I, 
I ran into a group of women, probably 30, age 50 to 80, who teach immigrants English and then how to read. And this process can take seven or eight months or years. So there's just takes forever. And when you walk into this room, they just radiated a gentleness and a kindness and a goodness. And they just cared about what you were saying. They didn't know me from Adam, but my, they made me feel so important. And they just radiated an inner light. And I'm sure we all run across these people periodically. You just radiate an inner light. And my reaction was, you know, I've, I've achieved way more career success than I ever thought I would, but I certainly haven't achieved that. And we'd all want to have that. And so I just wanted to figure out, how, do, how does that happen? And you talk a lot, David, about sort of being keenly aware of how the moral ecology, you use that term a lot throughout the book, has changed. And, and what, it became abundantly clear when you were listening to a command performance of a radio broadcast on NPR after World War II had ended, and then you juxtaposed that with a football play that you saw on television right after you were listening to that. Can you talk about those two different kind of moral ecologies that you witnessed? Yeah, so all, all great moral epiphanies involve NPR. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 and so uh, I'm driving home in, in Washington on a Sunday night and listening to our, one of our NPR stations, WETA, and they rebroadcast old radio shows. Uh, and they rebroadcast re a show called Command Performance, which was a variety show that went out to the troops in World War II. And I happened to hear the episode that was broadcast live on VJ Day, just hours after the Japanese announced their surrender. And Bing Crosby, who's the host, gets out there, and he says, uh, we've just learned we've won this war, but I guess we're not proud at this moment. We're just humbled. We're just glad we got through it. And I was really struck by the beautiful tone of modesty. And that was repeated again yeah, and again so, by everybody on that broadcast, right? So, right? like, Burgess Meredith was out there, and he was character actor, if you remember him, and he reads the passage from Ernie Pyle, and he said, we won this war because we have brave allies, we have great soldiers, we happen to have a lot of material abundance. We didn't win it because we're God's chosen people. We should just try to stay humble and be worthy of the peace. And it was just a beautiful sentiment at a moment which could have been chest-thumping. And so I watch that, and then I go home, and I turn on the TV, and I watch a football game, and a quarterback throws a pass to a wide receiver who's tackled after a two-yard gain, and the, the defensive player does what all professional athletes do at moments of supreme personal achievement, which he does a victory dance and honor himself. And it occurred to me I'd seen a bigger self-puffing victory dance after a two-yard gain than I'd heard after winning World War II. <laughs> and so that symbolized to me a shift from a culture of self-effacement, which says, I'm no better than anybody else, but nobody's better than me, to a culture of distinction, which says, look what I've achieved, We're spe I'm special. And I should emphasize, we would not want to go back to the moral culture of the 1940s. It was more racist, it was more sexist, it was less emotional, uh, the food was really boring. <laughs> uh, but in this one realm, concept very of homo self. Homogenous, very homogenous. Very homogenous. Yeah. But they, they had a smaller sense of self. They weren't bragging about what college they go to on the back window sticker. They weren't saying... Or where they uh, went on vacation. Or the MV... Uh, you weren't, there was a strong social sanction, more of a strong social sanction, about getting too big for your britches. And there was more of a code of reticence. There was no exclamation point on the keyboards of the typewriters, if you remember. You had to hit, like, I, think, uh, I don't know, you had to hit uh, apostrophe and then backspace and then period. And you couldn't text with those things. Um, and so there was just a, a, more of a code of reticence. And, you know, there's something beautiful about that. I say that narcissism is a voracious hunger in a small space. But humility is, is calm and beautiful. In fact, you talk about, I thought very movingly, about 
uh, George Herbert Walker Bush and about how his being a part of that generation was actually very difficult for him when he was running for president. Can you yeah. talk about that? I got this from two of his speechwriters. They would, he was running for president the first time, and they were trying to get him to say why I should be president, how great I am. And they would write in a sentence with the first-person pronoun, I did this, I did that, I did this, and he would cut out all the sentences with a first-person pronoun. Because uh, it just was in his ethos, we do not talk about ourselves. And they finally beat him up and said, you're running for president, you've got to talk about yourself. So he, put, he did a speech where he talked about himself, and his mom, who was still alive, called and said, George, you're talking about yourself too much. <laughs> that, that was so interesting, he, he though, right? Yeah. I yeah. mean, t think about how different it is today in terms of the candidates yeah. running, which we'll get to in a moment. But, you know, my friends who spend a fair amount of time psychoanalyzing you uh, <laughs> wonder if... if if, if there, somewhere in this awakening, was there a personal existential crisis that made you realize that you had, in fact, been living a vague life of moral aspirations and that you weren't the person you really wanted to be, rather than viewing sort of the changes in sort of our moral ecology? Was there something internally that yeah. was happening with you? It wasn't a midlife crisis. Um, I think if I had one, I'm shallow enough that the Porsche would have solved it. Uh, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> uh, um, Something tells me that's not true. Uh, no offense to the Porsche owners in the crowd, <laughs> of whom it's like 40% out there. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think this is a Ferrari crowd. crowd yeah, yeah. But an electric car Ferrari crowd. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, um, but I, you know, there, there are certain moments, partly it was just it was insufficiency more than anything else. And partly, you know, one of my undergrads said it so boldly to me. He said, you know, the chief myth in this society is that success leads to happiness, and that's not true, is it? And that is, that is a fundamental truth, uh, and, but we confuse that. Second, there's just insufficiency. Like I said, you see people ahead of you. And secondly, I do think there are different or third agency moments, moments when your internal criteria shifts. And I have in this book um, this, uh, a, great, a passage about a woman I revere, George Eliot. Through her 20s, she was emotionally needy to the extreme, and she in, fell in love with every guy she would ever meet. And it was pathetic. And she just, whether married, unmarried, whatever, she just fell in love, and they would reject her, or their wife would throw her out of the house, whatever. And she, was just, she, she grew up in a home without love, and she was emotionally needy. When, at age 32, she falls in love with Herbert Spencer, the philosopher, and... She writes a letter to him at the end of their relationship, which is a somewhat pathetic, like her old life, but somewhat profound. And the pathetic part is, please marry me, please marry me. Uh, if you don't marry me, I'll die. If you do marry me, you won't notice me. I won't cause any trouble around the house. It's like, uh, and that was the pathetic part. But then in the end, she has this paragraph, which is amazing. Where I'm, not, I'm just going to paraphrase it. It was something like, I suppose no woman ever before wrote a letter such as this, but I am conscious in the light of true reason, that I'm worthy of your respect and tenderness, whatever vulgar men and, vul and vulgar women may think of me. And it's that assertion that I am worthy of you. That's a moment that I think happens to people in their early 30s, where it's an agency moment. They develop their own internal criteria. They don't rely on external praise or, or affirmation. They rely on their own internal criteria for what they're worth, when they're doing right, when they're doing wrong. And that's maturity. That's when maturity happens. And so it happened to her at 32. And I think we have these moments when it happens to us in early adulthood. We sort of know what we want. We all have a bunch of things we love, and we know which loves are in which order, what we really want out of life. 
And, but then you go, you know, I think that happens in 30, you discover who you are. But then, you know, I'm 53, it happens again. You change, life changes, your circumstance change, and the things you want change. And so I think we all make four big commitments in life to, to family, including romance and children, to a creed, uh, to a vocation, to a community. And you make those commitments in, at adulthood when you're formed. And sometimes those are life commitments, but sometimes you can make new commitments at 53 or 75 or 80. And so I was at a stage in life where I was making a lot of new commitments, in part because of things that were happening in my personal life, in part because my career has hit a level where I wasn't manic about it. And so you, I was just... You sort of, of did the Peggy Lee, is that all there is? It wasn't quite that. I mean, I was, I was super happy with what I was. I wasn't dissatisfied. But I wanted the vector, just a lot of things, I'll say it, I got divorced three years ago. When that happens, it's not only the divorce that happens. On the day of the divorce, a friend of mine said to me, you know, if you project out a year ago, a year from now, and count your, five, your ten closest friends, seven of them will be people you don't know yet. And that turned out to be true, because a lot of things change. And so suddenly the vector of change in my life had radically accelerated. And a lot of new options and a lot of new possibilities and a lot of new hungers for spiritual and social and vocational depth came to mind. Uh, and so that happened in the middle of this book, and it, it was part of the process of reshaping. Having said that, it seems to be there are so many forces at work, David, these days that are working against that maturity, that growth, that agency, in terms of sort of how our world is working and this whole culture of narcissism that you talk a lot about it in the book. You call it the big me, the sort of you're so special culture, the obsession with celebrity and fame, social media. What impact have all those external forces have had on our ability to develop our internal character? Well, partly it's just the world is so competitive, especially for young people. There's just no time. Second, we're, hurt, we're surrounded by social media and just the buzz of information. And so it's hard to step back and hear the soft, still voices inside. And, you know, I, I was thinking about this at a session I was at yesterday. You know, how can you make lifelong commitments when it's hard to have an attention span that's more than 30 seconds because of what, you know, what everything is doing to us? And so I, I think there's that. And then there's a projection culture. You know, the, you mentioned the emphasis on celebrity. I'm really struck. A, a series of people have done work on this survey. And that at UCLA, they survey college students, what do you want from life? And fame used to be at the bottom or near the bottom. Uh, and now it's ranked second or third of what people want from life. I think it's part because of reality TV and part because of Facebook. But people really want to be famous. Uh, it's outward projection. Uh, and my two favorite studies on this are somebody asked, I think, junior high school girls, would you rather be a celebrity's personal assistant, Justin Bieber's personal assistant, or president of Harvard? And by something like three to one, they'd rather be Justin Bieber's personal assistant. Though to be fair, I asked the president of Harvard, and she would rather be Justin Bieber. <laughs> the, one I, the other one I like is the, they ask college students, would you rather have a life that involves a lot of fame or a lot of sex? And by two to one, they chose a life that involves a lot of fame. And so I go to college campus and say, listen, I'm on TV twice a week. I read a column in a prominent newspaper. I'm kind of famous. Go with the sex. It's better. <laughs> but didn't they ask something, too, about who would you rather have lunch with? And the oh, yeah. order was Jennifer Lopez, Jesus, and Paris Hilton, yeah. in that order. Yeah. A right? natural troika. Yeah. <laughs> 
Those are the three people I'd like to have dinner with, dead yeah. or alive. Just yeah. kidding. Yeah. But, um, you know, there's another survey, too, that I read that, that kids say, if, if you don't share it, with your on social media, did it actually happen? Yeah. And 55% say no. Right. No, I, I do have friends when I'm out with them, it, they're, they're wondering how, the, w- through what forum should this, this be shared? This experience. Is this an Instagram experience? Is it a Twitter experience? Is it a Facebook experience? Um, and so, but that just, that makes it all external. And, you know, and so my students and a lot of us are, it's very easy to be external to think, even when we're thinking about doing good, and you say, how do you want to be good? They'll, they'll say, I want to have a big social impact. And that's necessary but not sufficient. When you ask about something internal, it's not enough to say, I want to do good for the world. I'm really asking about the quality of your inner soul. Uh, and so that's developed in a different way. To, to succeed in the world or to solve a problem in the world, you need to compete against other people, compete against the problems of the world. But to develop an inner soul, I think it's necessary to confront your core sin, uh, your core weakness, and to confront and do a battle with that weakness every single day. And that's more of an internal process than an external process. And so a lot of, uh, a lot of us just don't have a vocabulary to understand how that internal process is happening and how you wage that fight against your sin. It's the confrontation against your own weakness that is, um, that is the essential moral struggle. In fact, you mentioned, I think, sin, somebody said 70 times in this book, um, and, and what role, is that just the, the acknowledgement that we are all deeply flawed? Yeah, well, I've, uh, part of this shift in moral ecology is a shift from a, a belief that we're what I call the crooked timber school of humanity, that we're splendidly endowed, but we're also deeply broken, and that we have both good and, and evil within us. Uh, Solzhenitsyn has a quote, the line between good and evil runs down through the, each individual human heart. And, that, and then we, I, we've had a new generation, which is a more including my own, I think any, anybody boomer and after, where we're raised to think we're really, the golden figure is inside, we're really good inside, we just have to love ourselves. We just have to actualize ourselves. And that sin is social. It's outside ourselves. But we're the golden figure of goodness that we have to get in touch with. I think the earlier moral ecology is truer. And I understand why the word sin is a very... I, I talked about this before I wrote, or in the middle of writing the book on Charlie Rose, and I got a call from a very great and prominent publisher in New York and he said, I love the way you described a book, but don't use the word sin. It's too much of a downer. Use the word insensitive. And I said, no, I'm writing the book because some of the older moral vocabulary that we've lost is necessary to understand the moral stakes. And now we only use the word sin in the context of fattening desserts. But, <laughs> but it, I think it's worth reviving that word. And I understand why it went away. It was used to punish sex. It was used to punish depravity. But sin reminds us first that each day is a moral occasion and that the choices we make have moral consequences. We carve a core piece of ourselves into something either slightly elevated or something more degraded with each individual choice we make. Second, a weakness is individual, but sin is communal. We all have the same sins, and we struggle against them together. There's a great, uh, I hope a lot of people have read this, the David Foster Wallace's Kenyan commencement address, where he talks about how self-centered we are naturally. It's just our natural default. And so we all have that. To work against that. Yeah, and so we have to work against that. And everybody has different sins. I think if you sat down and reflected for 10 minutes and said, what's my core sin? Whether some people it's vanity, some people it's just status orientation, greed, self-centeredness. I have a friend whose core sin is hardness of heart. He's busy, and when people come to him, he's just not present for them. Or he's at a meeting, and instead of really listening, he's thinking about what he can say to appear clever. 
And so at night, he, he lies in bed and thinks, how did I do today at that? And he tries to do better the next day. But understanding the core weakness, the core sin in oneself, is, I think, the beginning of the steps of, of moral education. How did your religious upbringing inform sort of how you've come to this point? How, you know, what, what impact has that had? Yeah. Well, I was born in a, a New York Jewish home where the phrase was, uh, act British, think Yiddish. Uh, and so, I would say the moral and philosophical structure that I had was different than most people, but it was familiar to people at the Aspen Institute or the foundation of the Aspen Institute. It was really, I went to the University of Chicago. Uh, my favorite saying about Chicago, it's a, a Baptist school where atheist professors teach Jewish students St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, <laughs> and, and this is how Aspen was founded by the same people, Robert Maynard Hutchins and Mortimer Adler. And during those two years, I was taught by professors Western Civ. I was taught Western Civ by professors who thought these are the keys to truth. These people, Aristotle, Nietzsche, Marx, Gospels, they lived and died for this literature. It has been handed down to us, and the truth of life and the truth about virtue is in these books. I still interpret morality through the great books. Now I've come to realize that they're insufficient. The great books are not alone. You need some transcendent realm. But uh, I do think it's necessary to do the reading. And, And I do think unless you do the reading and know the categories, and you know the words like sin, grace. It's very hard to understand what's going on inside. I have a passage in the book which is, to me, the ideal. It's a, a night that Isaiah Berlin spent with Anat Maktova, the Russian poetess, and he goes into her apartment. He's in St. Petersburg just after the war, World War II, and he'd never heard of her. She, she was a great poetess who was quieted by the Stalinists. And he goes into her apartment, and they start talking. And he gets there at 8 o'clock, and they start talking about their experiences of the war. And then by midnight, they're talking about Turgenev and Tolstoy. And then by two, they're talking about Pushkin. And then by four, they're talking. And then she's reading his poetry, telling her about the death of her husband in the war and of her children and her own oppression. And they're talking all night. And, you get, and then he, he, he has, desperately has to go to the bathroom, but he doesn't want to break the spell. <laughs> so he sits there all night, and then at 10 in the morning, He goes home to his hotel and flops on the bed and just says, I'm in love, I'm in love. And they both understood that night was one of the most important nights of their lives. And actually, Michael Ignatieff, who wrote a biography of Isaiah Berlin, did something very brave. The biography is probably like 350 pages, of which something like 40 are dedicated to this one night. And Akhmak Tova wrote a great poem called The Visitor from the Future about that night. And it's about the meeting of minds and the meeting of hearts and the meeting of spirits it's the kind of bonding we all like uh, or it, you know, revere. It's a bonding at depth. And I think to have done that, you have to have done the reading. Uh, and so you know, when Lincoln was struggling to get books, he was poor, but he was struggling to get books. I think that's part of a moral education process. And just quickly, finally, the, one of the characters I have in this book is Samuel Johnson, the great essayist. He was a radically wretched young man. Uh, he suffered from... Uh, smallpox, uh, uh, Tourette syndrome, OCD. Uh, uh, he, was, he was blind. He was deaf in one eye and one ear. He was radically wretched. What he did was he suffered in his first 30 years. He just suffered. And he has a great understanding of what suffering does to you. And it can either destroy you and shrivel you, or it can expand you. And the, the way it expanded him was first it introduced him to himself. 
because Paul Tillich, this theologian, has a passage. With, what, the, what suffering does is it takes you beneath the everydayness of life and reminds you you're not who you thought you were. It carves into the floor of the basement of your soul or what you thought was the floor, and then it carves through that, revealing a cavity below, and carves through that, revealing a cavity below. And it really introduces you to yourself, those moments of suffering. And then it teaches you empathy, because you, you want to, you are suffering, you feel empathy for others who suffer. And then it launches you up to transcendence, those who want to make use of their suffering and connect it to a narrative of transcendence. And so I have friends who's, who lost their son when he was six, and they didn't just say, we had two years of grief, let's go party. They created a foundation, Hope for Henry, to, to connect his death and their suffering to a moment of service and transcendence. And so Johnson went through all that. Self-knowledge, empathy, a commitment, which for him was writing. And he couldn't control his mind, he couldn't control his body, but he could read and write and grasp himself in the reality of the truth and develop a settled philosophy of life. And I do think in that way, just doing the reading, being curious, the people who come here and are curious and who try to set, achieve a settled philosophy of life, that's a component of moral education too. And if you haven't done the reading, if you don't have a, a settled philosophy of life, a commitment to a philosophy of life, then you're unsteady, and I don't think moral education can be complete. You need to give us a reading list and then let us borrow your brain for a few <laughs> months. You know? Believe me, my brain is... I, I, sure, I get this... I don't know, but my brain is, believe me, it's nothing special. Uh, if I did not graduate in the top third of my high school class. My SAT scores were not spectacular. Believe me, my brain is nothing special. I don't know about that. <laughs> but, but, let, but let's talk about sort of people of great moral character being, to, to that last point, being born or, or being made. And you say they aren't born, they are made. But don't you think that certain people are predisposed, even genetically predisposed, to certain qualities like empathy and kindness? I, I sort of think they are. I think mm. there's something very intrinsic about some people having those gifts. Yeah, I guess the first thing to be said is some people, we know some things are genetically related, risk, uh, how, willingness to take risk. And, but, I mean, our genes are there to be activated by our environment. They're there to be, to be either improved on or, or not improved on. Our genetic endowment doesn't exist, I think, in, in isolation from who we are and the, the lives we live. And so some people may be genetically endowed to be more um, risk-taking or to be more empathetic, uh, or to be more emotional, you know, more up and down. And some people are, have just equipoise. But I would regard these traits, you're on a leash. You, you can, depending on your life, you can flow. So they're malleable. Yeah, so we're malleable. And I would say each of the... And then in lived life, all the people in my book were messes at 20. They were all pathetic. And they were magnificent at 70. And it was something they did. Uh, and something they did with assistance from outside. So one of the characters is Dorothy Day. And Dorothy Day was, um, she was one of these people who, who couldn't just read novels, she had to act them out. And she became the novels she was reading. And unfortunately, she read a lot of Dostoevsky. Uh, and, and so she was drinking, she was carousing, she was living in a garret. Uh, and uh, she, her life was complete disorganization and a mess. Uh, abortions, suicide attempts. She couldn't control herself. And so at 20, whatever endowment, her endowment, she had an endowment for great spiritual depth. Uh, but it was unfocused. She was fragmented. And so her movement from character was from fragmentation to cohesion. 
And the, what changed her was the, the birth of her daughter. She had a birth of her daughter out of wedlock, and she had decided in the process of pregnancy that all the accounts of childhood she'd ever read were, or of childbearing were written by men. So she said, I'm going to write one. And so 40 minutes or something like that after she gave birth, she sat down and wrote an essay about what it was like. And she talks about the violence of it. And, and, but then at the end, she has a passage that's something like, if I had painted the greatest painting, composed the greatest symphony, or sculpted the greatest sculpture, I could not have felt the more exalted creator than I did when they placed my child in my arms. And with that came vast floods of love and joy and a desire to worship and a desire to adore. In other words, the birth of her child gave her a sense not only of the love for her child, but I have a friend named Christian Wyman, a great poet, who says that love is always flowing. It's flowing outward. And her love for her daughter flowed outward. She needed somebody to thank and to adore. And she decided there must be a God. She became a Catholic and spent the next 60 years in, uh, serv- in creating homeless shelters, food kitchens, in, in service, trying to live a life of poverty and a life of incredible focus and self-sacrifice, sometimes excessive self-sacrifice. But it was that act of childbearing which focused her, which she turned into a moral occasion to move away from the chaos and disorganization of her early life into the commitment and focus of her main life. She's one of the people you profile, David. I mean, you talk about others, like, and you can mention them, Dwight Eisenhower, Francis Perkins. How did you pick these people? And I know that you say that... that a number of things happened in their lives, and you kind of categorize them, like the humility shift, self-defeat, the dependency leap, energizing love, the call within the call. So how did you pick those particular figures, and how did some of these factors enter into their lives? Yeah. With, you don't have to go through every one of them, but maybe right. you can give us a, a sampling. So I picked people, I tried to pick people who were there, who were alive at Command Performance Era. So a lot of them were, in their four, were prominent in the 40s, uh, whether it was Eisenhower, Marshall, Dorothy Day, or Francis Perkins. I then cheated. Uh, and then I wanted people, and they all share one thing, this crooked timber view of humanity, this view that, that I'm broken inside and I need to fix my own brokenness. And then they exemplify different categories or different experiences that I think are part of a moral education. And so for Johnson, it's suffering and intellectual effort. For Day, it's submission. For uh, George Eliot, it's, I mentioned her as the agency moment, but her, it's, it's a daring leap of love. And so she had, a, um, uh, she, she fell in love after Herbert Spencer, she fell in love with a guy named Lewis. And George Lewis was a fellow writer who was also married, uh, who was married, but his wife was estranged and had had three kids with another man. Uh, and, but, and, but she fell in love with him. But this is Victorian England. If she's with George Lewis, she will be labeled an adulteress and written out of polite society and lose all her friends. So she has a choice between, uh, between choosing Lewis and choosing everybody else. And uh, she thinks about it for two weeks, mostly by herself, and she chooses Lewis. They go off to Germany. Her family cuts her off. Her friends cut her off. She's blackballed everywhere in London society. She's lost everything, and she's chosen him. And it was the right choice for her. Because from that emotional neediness, she needed a deep love, a deep, cohering love. And out of that love, she really came into herself. About a year into their relationship, um, Lewis said to her, you know, have you ever thought about writing fiction? Which he had never done. And 
she said, I'll try it. So she went off for a week and wrote a short story, which she then read to him aloud. And by the middle of the story, he's weeping because he sees the talent she has. And in some ways, his love is, is the more coherent or the more admirable because after that moment, he, um, he surrenders her, his career to hers. He knows she's way more important a writer than she, he is. So he becomes her, age, his, her agent, her publicist, her editor. She's very sensitive to criticism. And so she, he gets up in the morning and he reads through all the papers. If there's an article that mentions her, he cuts it out so she won't have to see it. <laughs> and she, he really serves her. Uh, and and that, what they have together is uh, you know, not just the first blush of passionate love, like Taylor Swift, but, um, but like a, a deep, enduring love. But this, this is really as much about him as it is about her, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, can I read this passage? I, yeah, I love sure, a passage. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Um, the, this man who wrote this passage was here earlier in the week. I think he's left. Leon Weasel's here. But it, it's about... Um, uh, it's about how love can be moral improving. And it's not passionate, it's not idealistic. It's a radical commitment from one flawed human being to another flawed human being. And it's very particular and it's very local. And Leon, who was here uh, for most of this week, wrote this as a toast to uh, two friends uh, who you probably heard of, uh, Samantha Power and Cass Sunstein when they got married in Ireland a few years ago. And this is what Leon wrote. It's a passage I happen to like reading aloud. Love is a revolution in scale, a revision of magnitudes. It is private and it is particular. Its object is the specificity of this man and that woman, the distinctiveness of this spirit and that flesh. This love prefers deep to wide, the here to there, the grasp to the reach. Love is or should be indifferent to history, immune to it, a soft and sturdy haven from it. When the day is done, when the lights are out, and there is only this other heart, this other mind, this other face, to assist in repelling one's demons or in greeting one's angels. It does not matter who the president is. When one consents to marry, one consents to be truly known, which is an ominous prospect, and so one bets on love to correct for the ordinariness of the impression and to call forth the forgiveness that is invariably required. Marriages are exposures. We may be heroes to our spouses, but we may not be idols. And that's sort of the realistic commitment of love from one person to another. And the way that commitment is particular and in some sense desperate, in some sense joyous. Uh, and that's making it turning what could be just a choice into a deep and profoundly anchoring um, activity. And I, I will say this after the book. I, I came to realize that I used to think character building was internal, uh, that you do it by like iron self-control, self-discipline. But then I, I came to the conclusion that none of us is strong enough to defeat our own sins by ourselves. We all need redemptive assistance from outside. And the people of great character, what they have is a great ability to make deep commitments to things outside themselves. Relationships. Relationships. Causes. A, a commitment, like a... Like, a, like Johnson to a settled philosophy, like, like Eliot to, a set of, uh, to be enmeshed in unconditional loves, um, Francis Perkins in the book to be dedicated to causes that can't be completed in a single lifetime, just long causes, uh, and to religious, like Augustine's in the book, to a complete dedication to God. 
And so the ability to make really strong commitments is to me the essence of character building, not so iron self-control. It's not an individual thing. It's a relationship thing. And yet you also say that even in love, that that has become a resume virtue. And of course, you talk a lot about resume virtues versus eulogy virtues. And we'll get to more on that in a moment. But since we're on the topic of love, you write, things once done in a poetic frame of mind, such as meeting a potential lover, are now done in a more professional frame of mind. What makes you say that? <laughs> I teach at Yale. Uh, <laughs> OK. Uh, I, I do think, you know, I do think a lot of things that have, were poetic have been turned uh, prosaic, uh, some, in some senses applying to college, and in some sense, we're all balancing time. And so when you're balancing time, your decision is filled with prudence. And I do think, and I don't know how universally this is true, I do think a lot of people in making these, it's, believe me, making a marriage decision is obviously, as I've told you from my personal history, a great enigma to me. But, uh, but how, much of, how much do you trust the passion and how much do you trust the prudence? I do not have an answer to that. But I do think a lot of people make that decision, what am I going to get out of it? Is it prudent? And in some senses, the, the affairs we love or we admire, are, they're made without counting the cost. Uh, and it, did, it didn't matter for George Eliot what the cost was. She didn't count the cost. She made the leap. Uh, and for, for Augustine, uh, the cost was very high for him. Um, and in some sense, I, I don't know how much we should trust that passion, but I do think that passion is an, is an element. And that passion, which is completely imprudent, unprofessional, non-cognitive, if you want to use the old-fashioned terminology, uh, I do think that's um, something that's harder to do in a society where we're, um, we've got guidebooks all the time, where we've got books like The Rules about how to date, uh, which I'm sure all of you have read, I know, uh, and which is all based on calculation, how to manipulate a relationship so to get it to where you want it to be. Getting back to resume virtues versus eulogy virtues, you probably don't need, probably a lot of people here have already read the book and a lot of the columns that you've written about this, but why don't you quickly explain that and then we'll talk about how society in some way, ways works, works against those eulogy virtues. Yeah. Just very quickly, the, the resume virtues are things that make you good at your job, whether you're good at accounting, uh, good at being a lawyer, good at math. Uh, the eulogy virtues are the things they say about you after you're dead whether you're courageous, brave, honest, honorable, capable of great love. And we all know the eulogy virtues are more important. But I do think we live in a society, and certainly an educational system, which gives a lot more primacy to the, to the, to the resume virtues. We, our school systems are built around giving people skills. And I think our colleges are relatively inarticulate about how to, how to be a really deep, good person. And you know, there, there's a debate between uh, Stephen Picker and Leon Wieseltier, actually, and, and others over whether colleges should be in this business. Pinker says, no, our job is not to do moral education. Our job is to teach geography or to teach psychology or to teach this or that. It's not our job. That is not the way colleges used to think of themselves. They used to think of themselves as character builders. And the, the college I have in the book is, is um, Francis Perkins's college, which was Mount Holyoke, which is a college that really left a mark on its students uh, these were, I mean, the, some of the rules in Mount Holyoke, when she arrived in 1898, one of the rules was, um, freshmen shall be silent in the presence of sophomores. Uh, freshmen shall bow respectfully when passing a sophomore on the hall. And that's to teach deference. But then her worst subject was, um, was uh, 
I think chemistry or biology. And so they forced her to major in biology. Uh, because if you can tackle your worst subject, you can tackle what life will throw at you. And then the most impressive thing Holyoke did was they, that they sent their kids off as missionaries around the world. And so it's 1902, and they're sending young single women off to Tibet, to Pakistan, to China, to Africa. And somebody did a survey of all the female missionaries abroad in 1920, and 25% were Holyoke grads. There's just this intense sense of heroic service. And there was that spirit of aroused heroism that, at least at Holyoke, they thought it was important to instill. Uh, and it was, that was not a professional training, that was a moral training. But let's talk about qualities like ambition, aggressiveness, competitiveness, that often make people successful yeah. in this world. Are they inherently incompatible with qualities that you mention in the book, like humility, restraint, reticence, uh, temperance, respect, and soft self-discipline, and the people who you say radiate that certain kind of moral joy. Can you have both resume virtues and eulogy virtues? Yeah, I think yes, and it's important to balance, but they sit in tension. And so all the people in the book are super successful. George Marshall, Dwight Eisenhower's president. But they, they sit in... T they, uh, well, here I'm going to borrow from a great book, which everybody should read. I cite it in my book, but you should read the original book called Lonely Man of Faith by Joseph Soloveitchik, who, who says we have two sides of our nature, Adam 1 and Adam 2. Adam 1 is the external resume side. Adam 2 is the internal side of, of internal growth. And he says these two sides of our nature exist in tension with each other. But they, sometimes being a good person uh, makes you better at your career. You know, most, well, if you're in business or in politics or anything, a lot of our career success is based on our capacity to build really good relationships. And building relationships is a moral, is, fundamentally depends on moral qualities of compassion and care and kindness and uh, compassion understanding. But, uh, so, but sometimes it's bad for your career I think I mentioned this in our conversation last year. I, I, I had a friend who hires a lot of people, and he asked them in the job interview the following question, name a time you told the truth and it hurt you. And he wants to be sure that they sometimes are willing to put their Adam 2 above their Adam 1. So I tell my students at Yale, you've got to learn to fake that one. Come up with a but, good answer. But I do think um, that... So sometimes... They're, they go together, being a good person helps you in your career, but sometimes they are in tension, and I think the essence of the tension, which I try to describe in the book, is that they operate by different logics, that when we're ambitious and we're building a career, we're operating by the rules of economics, which is straightforward, which is input leads to output, practice makes perfect, effort leads to reward. And that's a worldly logic of how the market works. But moral logic is inverse, and the way you make moral progress is through a series of paradoxes, you have to give to receive. You have to surrender to something outside yourself to gain strength within yourself. Success can lead to the greatest failure, which is arrogance and pride. Failure can lead to the greatest success, which is humility and learning. To find yourself, you have to lose yourself. And so that's a bunch of paradoxes. And you know, if anybody reads Jewish thought, if anybody reads the Gospel of Matthew, the paradoxes are filled. And that, that's a moral education. It's a different process. Uh, and, and life is about trying to find the balance between the two. Are there any modern-day figures who you think encompass sort of, uh, who are our modern moral exemplars, if you will? I mean, can you be a Warren Buffett and a Mother Teresa and have yeah. both of those? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think Buffett is, seems like a pretty admirable guy uh, to me. Uh, 
you know, I, there's a guy I barely know, but I've read a lot of his work who, who exemplifies this trade, which is Atul Gawande, uh, a surgeon in Boston, mm -hmm. who seems to, he operates on the body with a great sense of humility that, that what he doesn't know about the body is vast, even a great surgeon like him. And so there's a, just a grace in, in his presentation and a humility in the way he thinks about his role. I think my friend Samantha Power uh, exemplifies a lot of these traits. His works in the practical world of diplomacy while retaining that passionate inner core that I think drove her to go into this. It's, it's, a, it's a very challenging, I think it's so challenging to be in politics. Um, Are and, there any politicians? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, obviously Anthony Weiner and... No, you know, the, ch the challenge for politicians is that they're, they're, they are their product. And every, every meeting is about them. And every billboard and ad is about them. And so in my experience, is what they lose is the internal voice, the internal honest voice. That gets hollowed out or sort of starved away. It's, it's all public. And so the internal honest voice is lost. Well, it's hard to have an honest voice when it's all predicated upon polling, right? Right, exactly. And what the impact is going to be yeah. on a certain position. So we, um, we both covered John McCain in his glory days in 2000. And for whatever reason, he retained that honest voice. And if you got him in the right mood, um, then he, he would be completely honest about what he was doing, what he was doing wrong, what he was doing right. And I admired that so much about him. Well, that's why they called it the Straight Talk Express, know, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, I would sit on that bus, and the way you got him going was to pick on somebody that he really didn't like <laughs> and uh, get his anger going. Uh, and so I, I remember we'd sit, get in the van at 7 a.m. or the bus and say, what do you think of Rick Santorum? <laughs> it's like... <laughs> That's an asshole. And then, then he would go off. And, and, but then you had uh, like a day of honesty. Uh, what happened to him, though? Well, I think for a lot of things happened to him. He got burnt. He felt he was burned by the media. And then once he actually got the nomination eight years later, the public responsibility became so big that private, um, maybe it's still there. I, I, he's, his relationship to the press is so different than it was then. Um, and so, and I confess I felt a little used because it seemed like we were friends, but it was just a using relationship. Um, uh, but I think it's very hard because you get punished for having an honest voice. You really get punished for don't it. Don't you think people are craving that, though, that, that even if they don't agree with your position, they're craving that authenticity and and that they can live with a lot of things as long as they feel that you're being consistently true to yourself? Yeah. I would love to test that proposition. I mean, it, the politicians never go there. I don't think there. anybody's willing to. Yeah. Right? One of the stories I like is George H.W., the elder Bush, he was asked what it was like when he was shot down over the Pacific and he was in the water all alone. He didn't know what was happening. He might die floating there. And he was asked, what were you thinking at that moment? And he said, well, you know, at that moment, I'm out in the Pacific, and I'm thinking of my family, and I'm thinking of God. And then the little politician gear starts going, and then he says, and I'm thinking of the separation of church and state. <laughs> and, like, really? And so, yeah, so they have this, like, self-checking device. Uh, and, but, you know, you, you, know I, I, you can imagine what it's like. You're, you're, you're the nominee of a party. Millions of people, are, you're, they're riding on you. 
You don't want to make a mistake. I mean, Hillary Clinton's in this role right now, and she's not exactly Miss Authenticity right now. But maybe she feels, and I'm sure one would feel this, the burden of the whole party and the whole movement and maybe the whole country is upon you. You can't afford to just mouth off and be honest. You have to be so cautious. And I think it, she, it, has, it, she has everything to lose, I think she thinks, by, right. by making a mistake or talking right. to reporters yeah. about... And I'm sure if she or people like that were here, she would blame us and say, you guys leap on mistakes as if... And you guys treat disagreement as a, a gaffe, and you're unforgiving uh, when I do say something that I actually believe. I think both are true, yeah. by the way. Do you think that, 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 that we can help the electorate with this sort of development of a moral compass or an, uh, a, a, some kind of character, and that can be applied to our civil discourse, or is that just too far gone? Because I like the, the Solzhenitsyn quote that you mentioned, the, yeah. the end of it. You said the line separating good, he said, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, not between classes, nor between political parties, uh, but right through every human heart. Yeah. And it just seems to me that gosh, that it's gotten so vitriolic and nasty and polarized. Do you have any hope that this sort of search for, an, for some kind of character in all of us and humanity in all of us can erase some of that negativity that's so pervasive now? Yeah. I hope so. <laughs> but, I, mean, I mean, don't have much hope, but, <laughs> but one of the, one of the, I recommend that people go to read um, Dwight Eisenhower's Farewell Address which is famous because of his warning about the military-industrial complex, but it's also a great exemplification of, of moderation. And moderation is not being mushy in the middle. It's understanding that politics is fundamentally a competition between partial truths, and that mostly what we're trying to do is balance. We're just trying to achieve balance between freedom and security, between achievement and equality. Each, part, each party has a piece of the truth, and you're just trying to find the right balance for that moment. And if you see politics that way, it's hard to hate the other side. And I think one of the things that has corroded public discourse is the, if, if you go in with a modest sense of your own knowledge and know that, first of all, that the other side has a piece of the truth, but also life is more complicated than you know and that you're probably wrong much of the time and you need people on the other side to balance off your own wrongness, then you realize you depend on the people you disagree with if you have, believe you have truth by the short hairs, then the people you disagree with are just in the way. And so it's no accident to me that Rush Limbaugh's a very polarizing figure, and also his affect is his great ego, because the two go together. And so, you know, I just think it's a, a question of knowing, you know, I'm, I'm probably at least partially wrong about this, and that therefore we have to have excessive deference to the people who, and politeness toward the people who disagree with us. And I know you believe that with the gay marriage argument, that the way to win over people who are staunchly defending religious liberty in the face of the Supreme Court decision need not self-righteousness and someone who is so convinced of their own truth, but slow, kind of compassionate convincing. Is that accurate? Yeah, that, yeah. so you know, I'm pro-gay marriage. I've been pro-gay marriage forever, and um, probably like 90% of the people in this room uh, you know, my argument in the early days was not that we should allow gay marriage, but we should coerce gay marriage. We should, if we have a gay couple, we should say, you get married, you get married, you should get married. Uh, 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 but, uh, but, you know, right now, 37% of the country feels gay marriage is wrong. They feel it's being imposed upon them, and they feel something precious is being lost. 
So let's put ourselves in their shoes. Uh, most of them are, are Christian conservatives. So they have organized their life about uh, the truth of God's scripture. And they've built their lives around that. They feel with a great certitude and a wonderful um, depth that that is, that is the truth. That is how God wants us to live. He wants us to surrender. He wants to imitate Christ in service to society and service to the poor. And their life has been built upon that. And in many ways, it's wonderfully built upon that. And they have, I mean, the Christian conservatives do give more to the poor than liberals. They do serve in a, a thousand different ways to nurture the lonely, to serve the poor, to serve their communities, to serve their families. And the book that they regard as truth uh, has certain sayings about marriage and about homosexuality. And so they revere that. At the same time, most of the ones I know, especially the younger ones, know gay people. They love gay people in, in the individual form. And they're wrestling. And they just want to know how to balance And they're going through a walk. And some of them will say, no, I believe what scripture tells me. Some of them are wandering in different ways. And I don't know where they're going to come out. But I, th I see so much good-hearted wrestling in that community. I think, A, it's, uh, it's so hard for them. It's incumbent upon th those of us who are for gay marriage to respect them and their moral commitments, to respect the wrestling, and just as a matter of practical politics, given how fast public opinion is moving on this issue, to make sure that they, to allow them their space to wrestle and not turn this into a polarized issue. And I say that on behalf of, you're a kid who's closeted in southern Indiana and you want to come out, if the temperature is low on this issue, it'll be easy to come out. If in rural southern Indiana, being pro-gay marriage is the same, or being pro-gay rights is the same as being, or is perceived as being anti-religious, and we have a culture war on this, it's just going to be a lot harder for that kid in southern Indiana. So when, now that you've written the book and you've thought a lot of, and talked a lot about these issues, how, how is your soul searching going? <laughs> and how would you describe, ideally, your own eulogy? Hmm. <laughs> Not that we're rushing anything. Yeah, right, yeah. Uh, but I think we all sort of think of that at some point. Uh, yeah, David Brooks died embarrassingly on the stage at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, he hadn't thought about that final question. Um, <laughs> uh, well, first I would say um, that reading and writing a book doesn't get you there. Hopefully it can give you a roadmap, but it's actually in the action and the doing. Um, and so... And you talk about that in the book, right? About the importance of setting examples. For yeah, no, and yeah, I have this passage from this guy, Dave Jolly, who said, what a wise person says is the least of that which he gives. That it's the, it's the totality of actions. It's the small kindness. It's the way we treat people that gets communicated. The message is the person. And that's very true. Like, I, I use the example of Pope Francis. I don't know much about the theological innovations he's doing for the church, but I know I really like the way he handles himself. The message is the person. And so I do think that's... And, and reading and writing a book doesn't get you there. You've got to live it out. And I will Have say... Have you changed? Um, well, we actually talked about this once at an airport line in Aspen Airport, if you remember this. 
um, I think this was two years ago, um, I was the sort of person nobody ever confided in because I had a shell. Uh, and uh, starting maybe two years ago here at Aspen, I hopefully was opening up a little and I became a person more people confided in. And, but I had no clue how to handle this. It was like imagining leaving 51 years of Aspergeriness, and then suddenly you have emotional experience. No, that's an exaggeration. That's a bit of an exaggeration, but I believe me, I didn't know what to do. And I happened to be behind Katie at the uh, security line at the airport here, and I just said, what do you do when somebody comes to you, like with, with this story about the death of a child or something? And I think you just said, be present, hug. I don't, what, what did you tell me? I think I said, just listen. Yeah. And, uh, you know, let them... I mean, be there for them. Yeah, be present and communicate and, yeah, just yeah. talk to them. Yeah, so I try to do that now. But it's, so I think that's shifted. But whether I've become a, a better person, it would be, uh, no. I mean, maybe a little, but it's, it's a lifelong thing. And progress is gradual and hard to measure. And your eulogy? Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, have, I have purposes that I want from life. And I, I've got, I hope, 35, 40 more years. Um, and I know what my purposes are. I want to live in a, in a house surrounded by love. Uh, I'd like to um, bring moral conversation into the secular public sphere the way it used to be. Uh, I think we're over-politicized and under-moralized, under and just what we talk about in public. Uh, and then, I, you know, uh, I'd like to exemplify a certain way of behaving in the world, uh, as in political discourse. Um, so I'd hope to have made some progress in the next 35 or 40 years toward those things. And I think um, you want to continue to be a person of humility, which yeah. I think you are. And God, you could be so the opposite, really. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? But, yeah, but I'll probably be known for the fatal drug binge in Vegas in 10 years. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think so. Well, it's always such a pleasure to, to talk to you and really to listen to you, David. Thank you so much. That was David Brooks and Katie Couric, recorded live at the Aspen Ideas Festival on July 4th, 2015. The Aspen Ideas Festival is the nation's premier gathering place for leaders from around the globe and from across disciplines to engage in deep, inquisitive discussion and tackle the ideas and issues that shape our lives and challenge our times. You can discover more at our website, aspenideas.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow the festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.